everyone. Welcome back to Requiem Radio. It's me, your host, Solar Requiem, and also my host, Hazy Dialects. Today, for this episode, we have on the one and only most important guest ever, cheer posting. And today, we're going to be talking about Indo-Europeans and migration and cultural aspects of Dutch. Um, Hazy, want to introduce yourself? Um, hi, everyone. It's uh, Hazy Dialects, uh, a avid, obsessive schizo poster to some degree uh an avid editor and passionate person who loves the pronunciation of the australian peanut we're here with chair posting who's uh our special guest of the day so uh chair would you like to introduce yourself hi everybody um yeah i run a twitter account where i post cute animal videos uh scathing political takes and share little bits and pieces of my research on um, Indo-Europeans and Western moral systems. Speaking of the topic, what got you interested in researching into that? Yeah, so my initial interest in Indo-Europeans sort of happened in like a roundabout way. Um, I was kind of noticing that for a lot of moral issues, people would use the same words, but they were actually talking about two completely different concepts. And they would butt heads with each other because they just couldn't realize like this difference in this like moral landscape that they were describing. So I was wondering, like, where does this divide come from? And as I kept looking further and further and further back, I realized it really went way further back than I could have imagined. I was, I was expecting maybe Rome or Greece. Uh, but actually, it can be traced all the way back to the Indo-Europeans. And after I learned about them, it was kind of interesting to see like the continuity of like cultural features between uh, the Indo-Europeans all the way up to about the 1860s in uh, most of Europe and America. Oh, if you don't mind me asking, so this was like a pursuit of like how people communicate morality. Is that right? So the specific, um, the specific instance that really caught my attention is um, people will pretty much all agree murder is wrong, right? But in the United States, murder tends to be defined in two different ways. Um, the first way, uh, which is most common in the South, is like an unreasonable escalation of violence, right? So, like, just shooting someone randomly in the street would definitely be defined as murder in the South. But in other parts of the country, uh, murder is usually morally defined as, like, killing another person without permission. So, for example, shooting an intruder in your home by some people is considered murder, even though uh, legally it's considered self-defense, right? And so I was wondering, like, where, where does this mismatch come from? Because both of them will say murder is wrong, murder is a crime, you shouldn't do it, it's not really forgivable, right? But the actual instances that they classify as murder are not necessarily the same. And so um, I learned that the, the sort of thought that describes the difference between these two things is called moral systems theory. And the sort of southern... A uh, system is called uh, an honor system, and the system that's more common in the rest of the United States is called a dignity system. And I was trying to determine, like, 
when, like, are they natural features that all cultures have, or where did they come from? And it turns out that, that the Westerner system that we use in the United States and then the Dignity system are both um, specific inventions of Western culture to deal with um, moral issues, and that the Western honor system actually goes all the way back to Indo-Europeans. In regards of that, too, what would you say be other cultural aspects as well? Because you're describing morality of that, but you said it goes further back. Is there anything more than just, like, linguistics? Or how else would you describe it as, like, a wide field or where to look at first? The superior warf hypothesis is this idea in, um, like, linguistics that if you don't have a word to describe something, you struggle to think about it clearly. So I think it's actually not fair to characterize anything as just linguistics when the way we talk about things really shapes the way we think about the world. So, for example, uh, in the United States, we talk about making money. And this shapes, like, our idea of, like, what it means to work or run a business. Whereas in Brazil, where I recently moved, they talk about winning money. And it has, like, a completely, like, different thought process. You know, you're not generating the money as much as, like, you're finding some way to get someone to give it to you. And it's just a completely different way of thinking about things. So I think just linguistics is kind of um, kind of like a, a poor way to put it. Because, like, the way you talk about things shapes, like, everything. Um, but the problem is, like, there was this sort of, like, big disconnect around the 1850s, 1860s where, like, the continuity was, like, really good with, like, a lot of cultural forms. Uh, but since then, we've, like, started to completely, like, veer away from that. Um, like, for example, the importance of um, folklore and stories or old religious superstitions are, like, quickly fading in the West. Like, we all realize this, but, like, most cultures, like, keeping these is, like, super important to the way we, like, relate to the world because the stories that we tell ourselves are the stories that we we view the world through, right? So, like, when our grandparents talk about stuff, they always relate it back to the Bible, right? But when people our age talk about stuff, they relate it back to Harry Potter or Hunger Games because those are the stories that they're using to interpret the world. So linguistics is actually a huge part of any culture. So if I were to ask, um, you're saying that linguistics isn't the, it isn't the NLB all of it all, because I suppose linguistics suggests that it's the same thing with a different name. But when you look at other cultures, such as the one you're currently residing in, it's not simply just um, something with a different name. Rather, it's a different way, like a model of like interacting with that thing, especially like if we're just discussing currency or how to um, financially gain within a current system, like how they, the perception of making a living for oneself is, is different, is drastically different than you would say within the States. Right? Yeah. So, so the way of talking about, you know, earning an income in the U.S. is more conductive to, you know, a sort of like everyone wins mentality. Whereas in Brazil, it's really viewed as like a zero sum game. Like if I don't get this, Someone else will get it, and then I can't have it. 
Whereas in the U.S., the idea that like, oh, he got that. If I work harder, I can get that too is much more prevalent. Um, what, would you, what would you say are also, yes, thank you. What would you say are also some like, I guess, pinnacle researchers in this field? Because I know archaeologists have thrown their hat in the ring at the concept as well. I know you said recently, like, because of controversy, people haven't been touching that. If you want to go into that as well, that'd be interesting. But for you, what do you think? Like, are there any, like, professors or archaeologists you'd point to to be like, yeah, these guys are, like, pretty good in this? Archaeology is kind of a, a rough one at this point because it's currently undergoing, like, a shift. So, um, pre, like, 1950s, uh, there was this sort of like migration model that was very common. And then beginning in the 50s and then going through the 80s, there was, um, uh, it became more popular to think about it as quote unquote pots, not people. Um, that they believe that populations of people stayed mostly stationary and that culture moved throughout most of the world through um, trade and commerce and cultural diffusion uh, to the point that people were kind of trying to ignore some of the things that happened. And it seems that the truth is somewhere in the middle, uh, but, but this like pots, not people idea got so ingrained that it really took the sort of DNA revolution, so to speak, uh, to sort of like dispel this notion from the academic community. And so, DNA started to get somewhat useful around the early 2000s, but it's only been in about the last seven years uh, that the data sets have been big enough and fast enough and been like whole genome sequencing to really be able to definitively prove when some archaeological ideas were not correct. Like it's not all migration, um, but it's not mostly diffusion either. Uh, you have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis. So I'm not sure what the names of the, the best DNA researchers are. Um, I know that there are good teams in a few different countries, um, notably like the United States, of course. But um, mostly like when I'm looking at Indo-Europeans, I do focus more on linguistics. And Watkins was an absolute, Calvert Watkins was an absolute juggernaut in the field uh but he did pass away just a few years ago um but uh it is tough reading but for anyone who's interested in the subject uh how to kill a dragon aspects of indo-european poetics by watkins 1995 is like a great stepping in point it's much more accessible than 99 percent of the other papers or books that you'll read on the topic and what's interesting about the debate too is that for a linguistic perspective a lot of the languages are families such like, you know, Indo-Iranians, so like Hindi, Persian, and others. Romance languages like Spanish, French, Italian, and Germanic languages like English and German. And even more than that, there's Celtic, Welsh, um, Slavic, and even the Hellenics, like in the Greeks. And that always makes me wonder the question then, you know, I guess is is the question of the podcast is like, what were the homeland of like the Indo-Europeans of the topic like? And I know there's a lot of debate around that, but would you have like an opinion on that at all? Oh yeah, I have a I have a strong opinion. Um, I pretty much conclusively think that it's the the Pontic Caspian steppe. 
Um, and I don't know <laughs> when I describe that, I don't know if everyone's going to know where that is exactly. Um, but it's sort of like a southeastern, southeast of Russia, I would say. Uh, is probably the best way to describe it for anyone who like doesn't know where the region is. It is it's not a place that when you think of it, you would normally think of Europe, uh, which is a mistake that a lot of people make. A lot of people think that the Pontic Caspian step is going to be like in Germany or somewhere like this. That's absolutely not the case. Yeah, that's definitely interesting looking into that as well from that perspective of like that area of migration. Um, what else was I going to say? Along the lines of that, was there anything else you wanted to add on that particular point, though? Like, any, like, I guess, archaeological evidence? I know you said you're mainly doing linguistics, but to your knowledge, you know, is there any as well? Like, do we have, like, sculptures, like, art or anything like that? Well, so, one of the, one of the biggest issues with the Indo-Europeans is that they did not have a writing system. Um, and this has, you know, obviously made research into it much more difficult. The first attested writings um, that we know are very firmly uh, Indo-European are Indo-Aryan, that is, um, the Vedic people of India. However, the Vedic people did not have a writing system. Everything that was composed during the Vedic period was composed orally and memorized and then recited it wasn't until the system of writing came from mesopotamia after the vedic period was already over uh before they actually began to write down all of these oral traditions that they had so this makes like studying them like much more difficult compared to say like ancient egypt or ancient china uh, because they got writing much later um and the other things that they're notable for are chariots, horses, and cattle, uh, and moving very quickly, <laughs> none of which contribute very much to, um, you know, leaving behind records, because by, by their nature, they're a nomadic people. They aren't going to live in the same house year after year and develop tells, which are a type of uh, ancient trash heap, basically, like a hill just made out of trash or one of the best archaeological indications of, like, how people lived. And since they're, like, nomadic, they don't leave that much behind. And and that's made it kind of difficult to tell exactly what they did or exactly where they went. So, to your best assumption, what makes them different from, like, let's say the Mongolian Empire, where they would storm in, conquer, and then leave and go somewhere else? Well, that's the thing, though. They didn't really leave. Um, it It's much more clear in Europe than it is in... Um, Iran or related regions or in northern India um, because it seems that uh, when they met peoples who were more developed uh, they left less of an imprint um, but in Europe the pre-Europeans which is what we call the the peoples who were living in Europe before the Indo-Europeans moved in the the pre-Europeans didn't have like very strong warlike culture or anything like this uh, so when the Indo-Europeans came in, they basically killed a lot of the men, uh, instituted uh, a social hierarchy where people who were like full-blooded Indo-Europeans were at the top, 
and people who weren't Indo-European at all around the bottom. And then people who were mixed were sort of in the middle. And you can see like an absolute solidification of this in India. But but you see it in, in Europe as well. Um, and so that's kind of the thing. Like they stayed and by they practiced the the women practiced endogamous marriage, meaning they could only marry men who were Indo-Europeans, but the men practice also exogamous marriage. So they could marry women who weren't Indo-European. Um, so this kind of led to a, a very severe, what's called a Y bottleneck in Europe, where basically a lot of the men's genes died out as the Indo-Europeans killed them and took their wives. Okay, and one more question from me, then I'll bounce it over to Hazy. But you mentioned earlier how they have developed caste system, um, or sorry, social hierarchy. Would we see that origins of that in places like India? You mentioned, like you know, the caste system they have there, because at the beginning of the podcast, you were talking about you know, like for example, our grandparents used the Bible when telling fables or stories, and now younger generations they'd use like Harry Potter or whatnot. For them, do you believe that's like leftovers or remnants of their reign, if you will, to where you have cultures like in India being like, okay, this is, you know, caste or like this is our system. And even in Europe where they have like a feudal system of like different castes, what's your thoughts on that? Um, well, the caste system in India uh, is definitely derived from an Indo-European upper class because Brahmins, which are the the upper caste in India, are the ones who have the most amount of Indo-European DNA in some places up to 30%. Whereas people in the lowest um, caste, which would be the Dalits or Untouchables, have basically none. Uh, so you can see that this, there definitely was like a racial dimension to this hierarchy. Uh, in Europe, the picture is uh, a little bit different. Um, feudalism wasn't as strict as some people seem to think that it was. There was some mobility um, for people under feudalism. But um, because of the way society was structured, um, there's... I'm not quite sure exactly the best way to put it. Uh, but to give a statistic... And one point in London, uh, 11% of all women, uh, their job was prostitution. And of course, this is before birth control. So the men who would have the most money, the higher prostitutes would be upper class men. Uh, and so there was more mixing in Europe uh, because more women who were in the lowest classes as prostitutes would have the illegitimate offspring of richer men. So it's, um, there's more of a, what's called like a Klein or like a steady change in background as you move like east to west and north to south in Europe uh, compared to in India where it's more caste-based and less regional. Uh, but but you do you do also see this sort of like ethnic division between the ruled and the conquered. Uh, the classic European example would of course be Sparta. Um, you know they used to think that it was sort of a story that the Spartans told, but DNA evidence seems to indicate 
at least from what I've read, that um, the citizens were actually a different ethnic group from the helots. That's really fascinating to think about. I really like that. It's actually something I want to talk about more later in the future. Um, Hazy, do you have any other questions you want to get on for a certain topic? Um, my questions really have uh, nothing really to pertain to the uh, subject matter at hand. I think uh, you guys, um, if there's anything you want to ask about this in particular, I would leave it to you. But um, my question is more about like research and uh, um, methodologies and things of that nature. So if, um, if you guys have spoken about this exhaustively, I would like to ask those questions. Yeah, I'm okay if this we re revisit this topic. Um, Chi, are you okay with that? For sure. All right. Um, my initial question is, uh, what got you into research in particular? Was it just something you were already studying and then you decided to apply it to this particular field? Or um, was you just venturing in this as a layman? Well, I've always been sort of an interested person. Um, I think that any teenager who grew up when there was Wikipedia, who's even the least bit nerdy, can sort of like empathize with spending an unhealthy amount of time reading about the most obscure thing on Wikipedia you've literally never heard of. But there reaches like a certain point where you realize, hmm, Wikipedia is not really as reputable a source as I might have thought that it was when I was a teenager. And uh, I did attempt to go to college, but one thing led to another, and uh, it just didn't quite work out, you know, the way everything was going in my life and my family. I just wasn't able to graduate, but I said to myself, like, I don't have to have a piece of paper that tells me that I'm allowed to have opinions, you know, if I just read the exact same stuff, then I'm just as qualified to talk about it as anyone else. I don't have to have a little piece of paper. And so when I started to get into this, like, moral systems question, there just weren't really any good sources that were readable for, like, a layman. Like, there weren't any books at the time, really, that were, like, available. So I just had to start reading the papers. And then after a while, you get better at it, and you learn more of the skills. Um, and then you kind of, then you go back and you read the stuff that was written afterwards, and you're like, oh, no. Yeah, you definitely needed to read the paper because this is not quite right. So that's how I started like doing it on my own because I wanted to know about it. Uh, but there wasn't anyone talking about it. So, I mean, there's barely anyone talking about it in academia. Uh, so, so that's really like what got me into doing the research in the first place. So I was like, I don't have to let other people tell me what I can and can't be interested in. Um, well, I, I, um, I agree with that, at least in terms of like research, I find it to be really fascinating just in terms of, uh, how people engage with research. And sometimes I think, um, recently I've been trying to get more into research. Uh, it's harder for me to get into papers, but I think a while back ago, what made me really intrigued by research was a video done by hb bomber guy and he was talking about oh, soy yeah. and um a while back ago i think uh i don't remember his name but imagine my shock is his um tagline um he was talking about soy and talking about how uh 
people were being estronized by soy. Paul Joseph Watson, is that his name? British guy? Paul Joseph Watson, yes, the, that guy. Um, I thought it was interesting. It's like, wow, this is such a... Con- and it's like, it, it sounds like interesting, but it's like, yeah, it's it's kind of got the same na- like name, but it's like, it does entirely different things. And I thought it was interesting, like once you get into the research, it's like, it's very fascinating how someone could be led astray. It's the equivalent of like what happens nowadays on social media where people do nothing other than just post the headline of an article and don't read it at all. And then they're like, oh my God, isn't this like, absolutely absurd and it's like okay maybe on the face of it but if you actually read it yeah it's 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 fascinating how right it's just like with papers there's this there's this idea like oh i can just read the abstract and then i understand what the paper is saying and and that's really not the case there's some papers where i read through the methods section and i think to myself "Mm, i don't understand the methods here and then I just go on to the next paper. Because if I can't understand why they picked what they picked or how they analyzed it, then how am I, who am I to say like if the conclusions were like reasonable or not, you know? Yeah, and a recent thing, too, because I was doing a lot of research into Christianity in particular to the eastern part of the world, like in China or India. And a lot of the meta-analysis and studies I found showed that it had a very net positive impact and influence to these places. And for some people, when I, like, introduce this, like, data and meta-analysis, they, like, kind of, like, try to push it aside, like, oh, that's fake news, it's all these things like that. Well, I'm, I'm just kind of like, okay, show me how then. Because everything checks out. Their paper, they include all, the, like, the methodology in there. And they try to say things like, oh, well, you know, it's a double-tapped peer review, so, like, let's say me and Hazy were in, like, a university get- together, and we cite each other's papers in our PhD essay or something like that, and just kind of, like, you scratch my back, I scratch yours type thing, but when it comes to the topic, especially, like, you know, Christianity in um, the Eastern world, or even, like, the Indo-Europeans, like you said, a lot of this research is from, like, the 1950s prior, which is pretty solid stuff. You didn't have that then where people are quote-unquote scratching shards back it's like upfront research that still to this day stands atop it's kind of like when people brush off being like oh you know x point was debunked and then you ask by whom and then they error 404 and you they don't know what to say well uh there's one thing i would caution like the point at which certain fields were reliable depends entirely on the field uh, and the country uh, in some cases, the school, uh, but usually it's not, it's, it's more of a, a broad trend than that. So, like, for example, um, you know, in some sciences, stuff published in the 1920s is, like, crazy solid. And then there's, like, psychology. And psychology experiments from the 1920s, if they haven't been replicated since then, you you should probably ignore it. So it, it just depends, like, on the on the field and its popularity at the time and... And things yeah, like this, you know. I would say that yeah, it's kind of interesting what you just said there, because um, um, it's really interesting to look at how like research has drastically changed over the years. Like things like um, washing one's hands before an operation wasn't exactly the most commonplace, despite the fact that it's like common sense for us nowadays. Even the terminology of common sense is kind of an interesting thing, because well, while people use before the-, the germ theory of disease, like before people realized that there were basically little demons running around on their hands causing illness, 
Um, mm-hmm. There's no reason to think that not washing your hands would be a problem. Yeah, that's, you what, know, that's like, what I'm saying. Like, oh, by what mechanism, like, you know? People, like, forget the thing about common sense. It's just, like, a new garnered understanding of like practice and procedures um people look at the phrase common sense as like something that we are just inherently endowed with to understand as being ridiculous or absurd in nature on the face of it when that's not really what common sense means like that's not what you're um expressing when you say common sense it's just common sense is just kind of like where we're at currently with our understanding of things which is that's why yeah, exactly trying to and, and common um, sense is is somewhat culturally defined too right like, for yeah. example, um, the way that people count months determines how long they say things take. In the U.S., you would say that a woman is pregnant for nine months. But in Japan, because they do, like, lunar months, right, traditionally, they talk about a woman as being pregnant for ten months because it's 40 weeks divided by four is going to be ten. So you get these kinds of differences. And that's one of the big problems with psychology research, right? is how much are you measuring people's innate psychology and how much are you measuring the culture that they live in? For example, the conformity experiments performed in the 50s. Um, they don't replicate now, not because the research is fake in the 50s, but because the culture is very different now. Yeah. Um, um, I think one of the um, most fascinating things is uh, you brought up the theory of replicatability. I thought it was interesting because um, I have been recently um, looking over someone who's uh, Rolo Tomasi, who was um, discussing the irrefutable proof of like dating strategies, and uh, it was just, I just it just took with me. But uh, it was since it was about how um, women like date like men who are physically attractive will like they will obviously do while pursuing men of financial stability um keeping the two of these options open you know um this this is the mate this is the dating strategy um but in terms of like value and to me to me in, in terms of value and how like it would practically make sense um in terms of the investment one would need to put forward for just a child in general, it only makes sense to be monogamous. But beyond that, um, is the failure for it to exist in the modern era in this like research only to have any valuability beyond the small window he had found it in? He was like the theory, the failure of replicatability had something to do with some presumption of like new age researchers becoming a part of the field and that's kind of like funny to me it's um these are the things that like now are like when as i become more enamored by like just research and looking it up and um really getting into research one of the funniest things um you're here is something to the effect of oh i have this research and the docket isn't like public for anybody it's like um I think it was back then with a Lauren Southern debate, I think something to that effect. But she said, Oh, what what's 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 the issue with the research not being like oh, what is the word for it? When other researchers look um feather someone else's research, what is it called? What is it called? The word eludes me right now. But um she was basically discussing that it there's no issue with it not being like the research having not being vetted by anybody other than the person who made the research. So it's like those are oh, you like, mean peer review, right? 
Yeah, peer reviewed. Thank you. Oh my goodness, the word just would not and would not reveal this up to me. But yeah, peer reviewed. He's like, oh, what's wrong with it not being peer reviewed? I'm like, uh. <laughs> Well, see, the problem, the problem with that is that from publisher to publisher, the definition of peer review is different in a lot of publishers. It's um, quite simply like, do I read this and do I think it makes sense? Uh, they're yeah, not the like re-crunching the data. They're not doing a lot of things. And so papers that are rejected from one will be accepted by the other. Um, and so I think until there's a more... Uh, agreed upon meaning of what peer review is like it's inherently flawed you know because if yeah. peer review is just i read it do i think it makes sense uh, that has limited value for things that are counterintuitive wait you guys I are telling me germs aren't little demons running on my hands i'm still stuck on that i mean oh, bro, they basically are <laughs> <laughs> the whole conversation me wait demons aren't little germ running on my hand if you think about it, like a germ is basically a little demon living invisibly on the head of a pin waiting to mess up your life. See, that, that makes sense. That's why I like Cheers. He speaks facts. How, okay. many, how many angels can fit on the head of a pin? I don't know. But if bacteria are demons, we can test this scientifically. <laughs> what about white blood cells? Would that be the angels? <laughs> I guess so. I'm sorry. Go ahead with what you're saying, Hazy. I get what you're saying about like um, peer review, but um, like naturally, it's about like whether or not the most people prefer some level of peer reviewing by like experts within the field, not just because if it's just out there as research and a layman comes across it, it there's of course a layman might like lose or may not be able to properly interpret like. Um, like what the paper is clearly trying to communicate, and that's why it's usually like it's best to like at the very least someone with equal or comparable level of expertise in the field is what people are looking for. It's like okay, it's not just this person saying this; it's other people who have like clear equal level or on par understanding of the fields and the data to like look it over to say okay, this is what it is, other than just a doc that is not public to the um masses at large and it hasn't been peer-reviewed so it's going to be quite um at the very least make people apprehensive it's not a reason to dismiss it outright it's not what i'm saying but i'm saying there's a clear like issue for most people when they see that a paper is like doc that has like no public um it's not accessible to the public on top of it not being peer-reviewed so it's like okay i don't i think i think any research you can't read to yourself you can safely ignore um yeah and, and what I would say is, <laughs> is a lot of the things that you think that you can't get access to, this is actually not the case. Um, you can almost always, through like the DOI, which is like the uh, identifying number for any uh, piece of uh, research, you can look at the DOI number, and usually it'll tell you who the authors are. And then there's a couple of ways to get access to this research. Uh, one of the easiest ways, of course, is to go to Google Scholar and type in the name of it. Uh, and if there's like a free version, you'll see like a, a PDF or um, a web link to it in the right hand corner. If you don't see one of those, you can hit like uh, related articles or different versions. And sometimes there will be a preprint version that you can find. Uh, and if this fails, you can go on like other sites like academia.edu and people will uh, have like contact details there. And if there isn't a free version of their paper, you can usually email them and ask for one, and they're more than happy to send you a PDF. 
Yeah, it's way quick tips. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes um, you just really want to read a specific paper and you're not in college. So you don't want to spend like $178 a year on like login credentials for, for a website, you know? Um, quick question I want to ask. Um, what is, as someone who, how long have you been doing this for? Um, I'd like to ask. How long have I been doing like moral basically, systems and and like, like, Indo-European uh, research? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just in general, how long you've been just engaging with research and um, basically been in the field of like um, engaging with that um, field? Say. Um, on this particular topic, I think I'm running up on two years now. Okay. Um, um, other topic before that, I was mostly interested in theology, and so I had been doing that for almost. Almost eight years. Okay. Um, uh, anyone who wanted to delve into the field of like research and uh, trying to understand aggregates, uh, you know, what have you, what would you say is like a biggest pitfall for someone who's engaging with research? Like, what is something that um, the the thing that I think would trip up a beginner the most? Yes. Yes. Uh, a basic understanding of statistical methods. Um, statistics is not sexy, learning statistics is not fun, and for most people it's not very intuitive. Um, but there's some, like, very basic ideas that you really need to learn. Like, you need to understand the different types of averages. Like, we went over them in school, but most people didn't care, and so they don't remember. But, like, you need to very firmly understand the difference between mean, median, mode like you need to understand like regressions or p-values confidence things like this and for the most part like just taking like a an intro level like a stats course or uh, an introductory statistics like youtube um playlist will will get you like 90 percent of the way there and then when you just read about a method that you don't know what it is just google it and if you can't understand how it works, just pick a different paper. <laughs> um, I think that's kind of one of the funniest things I see happen is that um, sometimes people um, don't have the humility to be like, this is this is possibly out of my wheelhouse or like this is beyond my, um, my current understanding of the field. Because uh, as much as I see people pull, pull out uh, a, a data sheet and then try to explain um me personally, um, at least in terms of like discourse online, um, people's understanding of what it means for something to have a statistical like significance or like a um, is kind of hard, it's kind of like really bad. Like people's understanding of like, oh, this is a meaningful statistical difference, and that's like a probably a big hurdle for a lot, a lot of people to understand the diff like in terms of uh, gathering research. Yeah, and statistical significance, like the easiest way to yeah. explain it, is just. How unlikely is this to have happened by chance? You know? Yes. Most people And don't so if something's like very color. unlikely to happen by chance, it's considered statistically significant. And if it's quite possible it could happen by chance, it's considered not significant. And and what the threshold for this is varies by discipline. Um, so you just have to know the the field that you're looking in. 
Speaking of the field we're looking at as well, um, I know you said a lot of stuff isn't being touched on currently for the research, but are there any current trends right now or areas of research in the study of Indo-Europeans or any new discoveries reshaping our understanding of their history or legacy? So uh, I think I touched on this just a little bit, but right now it's just the DNA revolution is sweeping through the field. Like there's so many more like genetic samples being done of skeletons that have been found. Um, and now we can do whole genome sequencing for hundreds of individuals in the time that it used to take, you know, 20 years ago um, to do a partial sequence from one person. And as techniques improve, we're being able to sequence older and older skeletons and so on. And this is absolutely revolutionizing things. Like you can see it a little bit on the consumer side with things like um, Ancestry and so on. Anyone who's been on one of these sites like 23andMe, Ancestry, so on, will notice that every couple of months or every year, the percentages that they get change. Has your DNA changed? Obviously not. What's happened is they're getting more and more data sets uh, worldwide, but particularly out of Europe where most of the funding is. And this helps us like have a more accurate understanding of who lived where, when. And so this is completely, you know, revolutionized in the field because DNA can tell you if what moved was the pots or if what moved was the people. Uh, so a lot of stuff that people have built on over the last like 30, 40, 50 years is getting completely demolished. And, of course, some old theories are also being dismantled as well. It's funny you mentioned that. My birthday is recent, and I got 23andMe test, and I'm waiting on my results, but I got a call from a distant family relative on my Polish side, and I think I for my podcast, but I'm half Cuban, half Polish, and I was trying to figure out more about my European side of family, and we were just talking, and we haven't spoken, mind you, like eight or nine years, and then... Uh, I brought that up in conversation. I got that for my birthday. And the response from my relative was, oh, are you trying to learn more about the German side of our family? And I went, the German what? And then it was just a whole talk for me. And then Many such cases. Doubled, yeah, she doubled down and said, like, yeah, I think we're always talking about that, but we have some, like, lineation, like Caesar and, like, Rome. So I'm thinking in my head, we was Romans. Let's go. This is like <laughs> That's too funny. Yeah, Roman Emperor, yeah. kneel before me, man. I'm just that good. <laughs> oh my People goodness, People still man. put flowers in Caesar's grave. So. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. What a leader. What a giga chat, I swear. Um, <laughs> yeah. I ask, um, in terms of like now getting more accurate um, representations of like that, like in terms of DNA and uh, lineage, uh, what is causing that exactly? Um, what is like change in terms of like research uh, methodology? Is it just like new tech or is it just a, a new model that's being used? Yeah, so um, it's like 90% uh, new tech and like 10% new methods. Um, because, of course, when the tech wasn't there, they couldn't think of, like, better ways to extract, like, DNA from, uh, like, dental pulp or humerus bones or places like this, right? Because there was just no way for it to get, like, sequenced. But now, uh, because sequencing is so much faster, they're actually able to try different methods and see which ones work best. 
uh, for like extracting like the DNA or preparing and cleaning it. So, so basically like this, this immensely like powerful tool um, for this like DNA is like completely revolutionizing the field, like to the point where uh, people who are not engaged in like DNA research are kind of sitting and, and waiting for the DNA to roll in because if they put out a paper, it could get disproved next week by, you know, new genetic sequencing. So on the theoretical side, there's been a bit of a pause, like to wait for like the DNA to, to catch up. Now, of course, like uh, philologists or linguistics people, you know, who are studying how languages change over time, like uh, the DNA like revolution affects them only like peripherally. It helps them to interpret the data that they find. Um, but uh, they can mostly like continue as it was before, which is part of like why uh, I mostly focus on that because that really hasn't changed uh, much. It just continues at its own little steady pace, one foot in front of the other. Um, now I wanted to um, just um, probe you about linguistics since I brought, heard you brought it up earlier in, um, in your uh, pursuit of discovering um, just history and um, just how some people's lineage and like the origin for a lot of morality. Um, what in particular fascinated you about linguistics? Cause I, um, to a certain degree really, um, enjoy stories, um, to some degree, cause I feel like those stories can sometimes endow us with some understanding of like, you know, some strict principles of like, you know, attending to bedtimes or regiment, uh, what have you. Um, but at the same time, people, what I find particularly interesting about linguistics is how someone can communicate an idea without um, just stating it candidly. And sometimes I believe um, expressing it in an indirect manner in which there is some effort put on the reader to figure out whatever that meaning or message is um, can sometimes result in it feeling more compelling by the time they do realize what is or whatever it is is being conveyed. So I want to get your perspective about linguistics and, um, um, you know, your um, engagement of it. Yeah, so I think um, first I should describe like the method uh, that people are usually using when they are uh, doing research on Indo-Europeans. It's what's called the comparative method. And basically the comparative method has one hypothesis and uh, this hypothesis is that when words and grammatical features and structures and expressions are, have a correspondence between them that cannot be explained by borrowing or other types of cultural influence, then they must be descended from a speaker group uh, that then split into two populations. And this, uh, this speaker group, when there's no, um, you know, no written record of it, is, is obviously like much harder. Uh, but for example, we can look at one of these groups that does have a written record, and that would be Latin. So we look at people who spoke 
speak Romance languages like French and Spanish and Portuguese and Italian. And when we look at the words, we can see that there are certain like very clear correspondences between the words. And these are not attributable to chance or borrowing. Uh, instead, they're clear evidence that they've all descended from Latin. And so Latin would be called the proto-language for these Romance languages. But a lot of the languages of Europe also, to a lesser degree, have high degrees of like similarity. And these similarities are systematic in the sense of for example, in English, if a word ends in I-T-Y, there's a really high chance. In Spanish, it will end in D-A-D. And in Portuguese, it will end in D-A-D-E. Right? So, like, this kind of clear correspondence, like, the systematic correlation of, like, one to the other, uh, is what points us back to a proto-language. So, like, for example... English, uh, I don't know if, how many people actually know this. is actually like a Germanic language, more closely related to German than it is to Latin. Even though we do have a lot of French and Latin words in English, it's at its root like a Germanic language. But like a Germanic language like German and uh, a Romance language like Italian have like these correspondences so we know that there must be an older language that comes before that and we call this language proto-indo-european proto just meaning like an ancestor language right and so the comparative method is basically this task of like looking through all of these written records and trying to find like systematic correspondences between them and these are called sound laws and so we'll describe, like, in this situation, in this language, this will make a C sound. And in this situation, in this other language, it will become a K sound. Um, you can, I, I think probably the clearest example that I can easily give, uh, that most people would be familiar with, is a, a podiatrist, right? Is like a foot doctor. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... We know that that root, pod, uh, means foot in English. Like, we just have that memorized, right? But there's actually a sound law that describes this change, that the P in Greek usually becomes an F in English, and a D at the end of a word in Greek usually becomes a T in English. So pod literally becomes foot in English. And this is the kind of like correspondence that the comparative method is like looking for. And so by looking at all of these, we can sort of like reconstruct what the word root word probably was in Proto-Indo-European. And the really important thing about this is if the proto-language had a word for something, that means it had already been invented. So, for example, ancient Greeks definitely didn't have any word for cars, because they didn't have any cars yet. So when we look at Proto-Indo-European, and we see that they have words for carts, wheels, horses, and dogs, we know that before this people group split into the, the various like uh, groups, like the Germanics and so on, that they already had 
all of these technologies, even though we don't have any writing from this period. And so as we do this comparative method, the further back we can get a word, the further back we can get proof that this concept existed. Because you can have a wheel and not have a word for it, I suppose, but you can't have a word for a wheel and not have a wheel or know someone who does. And that's kind of like what makes it so like compelling. Thank you. Um, I, one of the things I uh, really got interested into words and just like learning things is well, just learning linguistics and how um, a lot of words we use, that's just in common parliaments, you start to realize how many of them have like different origins, like nostalgia, um, you know, uh, missing of one's home to some degree. Um, or like, I never knew, like, it just comes commonplace that, like, alcohol still has the word spirits next to it. But, like, I never, you just kind of accept or take for granted that it's just called spirits. And you never understand or know why um, it's called spirits. Um, so, I like learning the origins of words. Um, some people say it's from the Quran, uh, a reference to, like, demons and spirits that produce intoxication. Another one's, like, for, like, H and eyeliner and all that, but like I like learning the like origin for like words and how they like um, work. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of just in learning about the language, is that like usually you you find it fascinating because of like the origins of like where they could have dawned from or where the um, language like like starts from or like it just in terms of historical like significance. I usually what brought you to uh, linguistics. I'm sorry, could you say that just one more time? I was just asking, um, in terms, so from what I was deriving from what you were saying earlier is that um, usually it's just like the, the historic, historical significance from some words or language and how they, how we get to them is like usually what like, um, is what fascinated you like that's what fascinated you to like get in, involved in linguistics to find out the origins and to find out what like words like they came from and so so while i do find that interesting at like a hobbyist level it's definitely not uh what got me interested in like um like the comparative method it was really just the utility you know like if we can reconstruct a proto-indo-european word for horse then we can safely know that they either had them or knew someone who had them. So it's a way for us to sort of like look back in time to a place and a time where there aren't written records and there might not be much archaeological evidence because they are uh, a nomadic people. Okay. And we can kind of see how they've like developed over time because like the more closely related the proto language is, like the more vocabulary is shared. And the oh. further apart they are, like, obviously there are fewer words that can be, like, safely reconstructed. So, ability to describe the indescribable to some degree. The ability to describe history as experienced by people who are no longer alive. Like, the words yeah, that like... we say are, like, evidence of the fact that they lived and how they lived. Yeah. Um, putting words to something that, like, they didn't exactly have, like, a language to speak of. Just kind yeah. Of natural... mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Their language, you... our, our language, kind of speaks for them in a certain way. Um, we could trail into um, um, both of y'all are y'all um in terms of myths um, 
we brought it up earlier in the conversation um and you was was you speaking towards the cultural like teachings of them or was you just speaking just in generally about like how it affected culture in general like what would you what do you what do you mean when you were referring to like myths and how the uh, the utility for them yeah so um kind of both um so a myth in this sense would be any story that people tell others and use to make sense of their lives so like harry potter by being so pop culturally you know huge uh has cemented itself as something that people constantly like refer back to um and star wars as well people constantly refer back to it or lord of the rings and they use these stories to evaluate like moral situations like oh you shouldn't act like that like that's how voldemort would act or oh i should act like this because that's what harry potter would do uh you know these are things like people don't probably probably don't consciously think that they're making these comparisons uh, but they definitely are. Like you can see it online. You can see it when you meet people in real life. They will talk about these really? stories in relationship to like moral or ethical issues. Do you know um, that? Uh, you know that uh, uh, Lord Voldemort was a big advocate and a, and a fanatic of Hamas dipping uh, dipping chips. He he dips his uh, when, whenever he finds himself some chips, he dips it in hummus. You know, he's a he's a big fan of that stuff. Um, I didn't know this until like I went on the Israel uh, like official page and they were like, did you know that Lord Voldemort enjoys hummus? I'm like, wow, I didn't know that. Israel, thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, I think that's the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> that was so uh, that's, that's like top three, top three worst things I've ever heard, bro. bro. Ears, like, my ears have been violated. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> no, but uh, on the topics but, of but myth, like, yeah, go ahead, here. But yeah, and and you know, it seems silly to say that, but like people really do think like, oh, what would my role model do? And they're putting, you know, Harry Potter there, and people might well, think that that's crass or that that's weird. But if you grow up in a very religious background, it's very normal to ask yourself, what would Jesus do, or what would David do? Or well, any of the other like heroes that that we see like in the Bible. Jesus Christ, and, my um, girl. Yeah, when um when um I think I remember a while back ago when I was just a wee lad, uh, uh, you know, in school, I had been um infected by the movie Bob. He was he was a highlight. He was a hero, a bastion uh, amongst the uh, digital era in space. And when it came to the 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 um, palpable toxic environments within the gaming areas and the uh, belligerent nature that they would speak to the other sex with. Movie Bob inquired one thing: Would Mario be ashamed of what we are doing now? Would Mario, Mario, knowing how he traveled through the pipelines to save the princess, approve of our misogyny? It, it made me pontificate quite a bit, you know. I, I uh. Yeah, so uh, I just wanted to like. In... I apologize. God damn it! Thank you for this this amusing anecdote. What I appreciate your contribution. Oh, no, really, really quick though, um, it's interesting um talking about the Indo-Europeans and like their mythology too, because although they were 
they did have pantheons. They were also one of the first people to coin the concept of like dualism of like, you know, light versus darkness, order versus chaos. I thought it was cool. And they had different like animal gods I know as well, not in detail that they like, you know, saw symbolic. And people too, like I know there was one guy who had like a receding hairline, so he's kind of like hazy, but he's like one of the like gods of those, if you will. So yeah, definitely hazy. You should check him out, you know. If you need to get that looked at, if by any chance. What do you mean by that? <laughs> what do you mean by that? No, but jokes aside, jokes aside. Um, on a serious note about the um, what's it, Indo-Europeans? They did have that concept of dualism, which I found interesting. Like you didn't really see that in other cultures or societies, especially back then. So. For so, now, so by, by dualism, yeah. do you mean mind-body dualism or the duality between good and evil? Duality between good and evil, not mind-body. So they were very heavy as a society on, you know, light versus darkness, good versus bad, chaos versus order, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. From my knowledge on that, if you want to expand on that as well, feel free to. Yeah, for the Indo-Europeans that went into India, um. You know, first they came through Iran, right? And the Iranians um, created Zoroastrianism, which is absolutely an Indo-European religion. And they sort of... I, I know some people are quite religious, and they're going to take this the wrong way, and I apologize, and I don't mean it that way. But from a secular viewpoint, um, Zoroastrianism kind of pioneered the idea of the crusade of good against evil uh, that later became picked up by uh, most of the monotheistic religions we know today, like Judaism, notably Christianity, and uh, Islam. Uh, but the ones who stayed in Europe, to my understanding, were not as developed on this idea of good versus evil <laughs> as we would like see it in Zoroastrianism. This actually like came back later through Indo-Iranian influence. Although, if anyone has any papers about it, like I'm more than willing to to read them. But that's that's basically my understanding is that it developed uh, in the Iranian cultures and then came back up uh, with Christianity. Not to say that they didn't have good versus evil, you know, because you can look at the mythic cycles of, you know, um, slaying the serpent and so on like there's obviously the people who represent the people we like and people that represent like chaos and disorder and we want one to triumph over the other but it's not it's not the way we would normally look at it now through the lens of like christianity or western civilization but cheer would you agree though that christ is lord i'm not a christian unfortunately Ugh. Fortunate. <laughs> that was just, that was that was the only takeaway. He's like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's like it's <laughs> Christ Lord. <laughs> quite, quite. Um, I wanted to ask a question. Um, and just get both of your perspectives on this. Um, do you think the um, like, out of many of the myths that you guys do know about, um, would do you believe that there is any um currently that come to mind that could um like speak to like it like in just in terms of like i think i should just describe it as this in terms of raising children right are there any myths that you think that like um or just a guideline for like parents to like endow their children with that like could like help 
better raise them with like endows them with like a good lesson like one that comes to mind for you um not any myth in particular uh, i know everyone finds Grimm's fairy tales absolutely terrifying but the Grimm brothers, um, they were actually studying Indo-European folklore, and they uh, compiled the folk tales, choosing only the ones that they thought were Indo-European or very close in origin, rather than like local stories that were only found in some parts of Europe and not others. Uh, but they always gave preference to the German versions, which are only eclipsed by the Slavic in their absolutely creepiness. Um, and there are... The problem becomes um, that culture has changed a lot. Like, the way society runs is completely different. Like, so, for example, you'll notice a theme in a lot of these stories is that children should be scared of strangers. Um, but in our modern society, people can't be scared of strangers. We leave kids with strangers, like, basically for 12-plus years of their life. Uh, strangers are with them, sometimes even more than their own parents are. They work with strangers. You know, some people who move, you know, they even go to church with strangers. You know, their, their family is quite small. So... Sometimes you have to be careful with the kind of morals that older stories are going to teach because some of them are really just not compatible with, like, civilization uh, as we, like, currently understand it. Um, I will say that there is an emphasis in a lot of older stories on action, uh, which is both good and bad. You know, like, uh, legal systems weren't well-developed when these stories were created, and so... Um, the characters take action themselves, and they don't wait for other people to come and save them. But teaching kids this is sort of like a double-edged sword, because there are certain limits to what you should do yourself nowadays, and what you should uh, leave in the hands of like other people. Like, for example, uh, you can't avenge your father in the same way that men in Indo-European myths did, because you will go to prison. And if you raise your kids on these stories, you're going to create this sort of moral dilemma uh, where they have to choose between what seems innately moral to them, which is, you know, avenging the death of their father, and what will keep them out of prison, which is calling the police and letting the justice system deal with it. I know this firsthand because, like, I was raised on a lot of these very traditional stories, uh, and the morals are not really compatible with like the world we live in today so it's a sort of double-edged sword in this case like if you teach these stories to your children they'll have traditional values which is both a strength and a, a weakness so you have to you have to think about it as a parent and decide for yourself like where you want to fall thank you um one of the things I want to touch upon uh, is the not knowing a stranger. I think it's more like now having to build a better model for like who they should and ought to engage with within certain parameters or who they can or cannot trust. You know, uh, me, um, I think naturally there's some trust that must be um, div um, endowed with certain academic like instructors 
However, you know, you just follow the sonic principle uh, of uh, telling them uh, it's your body. Uh, no one gets to touch it. Uh, you know, you, you just scram, you get out of there, you know. Um, sonic uh, VA voice actor, everyone would say. But um, all jokes aside, um, I do believe that it's very important um, to basically modernize these stories to some degree, you know, some alterations, because a lot of stories can't really affect kids with the same level of, I suppose, fright, since we don't exactly live in the unknown. If anything, there's a more uh, prominence of information within, like, the social media landscape, as well as with children growing up with phones, social media, and all these sorts of um, just um, um, high-tech, a part of their common, like, every day, they understand technology better than the parents. So, uh, the disciplinary of like trying to make children cautious through the unknown is um nigh near impossible nowadays um, um i'd have to disagree like, with you with that one hazy and my reasoning why is i see it as a trade-off of skills so like for the older generations they may not be as tech savvy but they still have a lot of wisdom on like common sense or common practicality things such as you know Changing tires, knowing how to repair houses, knowing how to use hardware that you see in today's younger youth don't know how to do these things. And they oh, spend time that... questioning as well. Like, you know, you don't see an old man being like, huh, am I, uh, you know, what am I? Is my politics XYZ? Am I this, this, that? Well, like, our generation is questioning everything, which I feel like it would be a double-edged sword. It's like, I don't think everything Great. has to be super complicated. Um, Granted, I do believe that, like, the older generation um definitely probably were more practical in some of the skills they learned but due to the accessibility of information and how it exists nowadays i would say that i'll be um i'm more frowning on a younger generation to not ascertain that information now granted like misinformation is definitely like a like a big problem but in terms of being practically knowledgeable in the ways that your parents could be um it doesn't exactly require an elder. Like there are um, people who are teaching sometimes um, almost or nigh near college like level, like like classes online or teaching you things about like how to tra change a tire online. These are things that like you couldn't just simply look up on media or on AOL. So like the, 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 the um, acceleration of this accessibility of that knowledge is definitely um, something that's drastically different than um, any other era in particular. And I don't think that um, um, you need to go to any particular elder to know these things. So I, it's 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 a it's a it's a a big of a bigger problem than that sort of knowledge being inaccessible because I would agree to you to some degree that like there's still respect and there's still those people who have those life experience that you can still endow with them with love and respect because they know and they've gone through these things and that would um, to some degree help a child who is like you know very. Um, incredulous to some degree but in terms of like the access of knowledge and the know-how of these other things i think that the accessibility of like the internet in general um makes children more privy to like how to do these things and better yet even navigate how to get these things i i would say i would say there is like this one uh pitfall with the accessibility of information is uh knowing how to evaluate that information so um, one good example is in the past, um, if you were the eldest son, you were going to do whatever it is 
that your father did. Um, and that's just the way it was. And I think one important thing to understand about people is most people are going to do whatever society expects them to do. This is the sort of like 90% of people are going to just go through and do what society says. If society says you're going to get married at 18, well, you're getting married at 18. If society says you're going to go to university, you're going to go to university. Uh, for the vast majority of people. And the thing is, people need this guidance. If you just tell people, oh, you can do whatever, they sort of get paralyzed by this indecision. There's too many options. There's too many things they could be doing. Saying follow your passion well, doesn't really make sense when most people have, like, multiple hobbies. Which hobby do you pick? You know, like, how do you choose between them? Like, we don't, we don't teach children how to do this. Because it's, it's societally very new. Um, it's only been two or three generations that there's really been this, like, free choice of work. Uh, whereas in the past, there was a more clear-cut uh, way that people would live their lives. And the thing about the 10% who don't follow what society would say is it doesn't matter if you told them to be a farmer or not. They're going to be a scientist or an actor or whatever it was, regardless of what you tell them. So telling them, oh, be a farmer, isn't going to change their actions any. But it does provide support to the vast majority of people who need direction in their lives. And this is one thing that um, these kinds of stories do provide, like these kinds of like role models that people in this situation do this and people in that situation do that. And since we live in such a pluralistic society, it's like really hard to share stories that make, you know, strong moral judgments because there are people who live their lives in so many different ways. You know, you see this issue where like, oh, you shouldn't teach your children, you know, to, to live by this biblical value because not everyone is Christian. But at the same time, like, you have to teach them some values. And if you're Christian, well, obviously you're going to pick Christian ones because they're the ones you believe in, right? So, um, you know, the, the old, like, division of my son, my first son does what I do, my second son joins the military, and my third son becomes a priest. Like, it's not like this was universally followed, you know. Uh, people had more than three sons. But it was this kind of default that if your kid didn't know what to do, well, I guess this is what they're doing, you know. And, um, and, and kids just don't have that anymore, you know. People say, oh, you know, do whatever you want. People don't know what they want. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I do believe that definitely children do need that structure. And to agree with, well, I don't even know if this is necessarily agreeing with uh, Zola, but I do believe that like parents definitely can provide that structure, um, a, that guidance that children do need when they know little to nothing about like um, how to find that footing in the world. That can definitely refine that ability for them to find that footing, um, as well as um, to some degree, I do believe that it's important um, for most people to have a bit of structure. While, as, yes, the internet has provided us with a lot of information, um, I do believe um, having, like, growing up with your child, um, giving them days where they cannot have access to the phone, um, definitely um, endows them with understanding and acknowledging that, like, 
an over-reliance with technology can be a hindrance to a person. Um, it isn't, it shouldn't be um, treated like a secondary organ or something of that vital nature. Um, just in terms of raising a child, um, succinctly to put it, I do believe that parents can provide a good structure for parents for, for the children growing up in a world with such a large access of information and the child may not be no, might not know how to feather it properly. And the parent can be there to um, um, examine it with them and give a proper um, context where um, they may not be endowed with that uh, level of critical or analytical eye. And I think that could be like a hand-in-hand -hand sort of gesture um, between the two, uh, whereas the younger generation has a better understanding of technology just through the fundamentals of growing up with it. Um, a parent can have that innate critical eye through their life experiences and what to look out for. So, you know, there could be a mingling between these two, like, facets, um, this power creep of understanding technology through um, growing up with it and um, a, a feathering that can occur through parents knowing better and through their own life experiences. So, yeah, I think these two can work together um, amazingly. I never got um, – also, just wanted to ask this question real quickly. Um, um, Sola, was there any, like, myths or, like, um, stories that um, can be passed down through generations uh, that, that come to mind for you? Um, you think about, like, uh, generational, like uh, – like um, stories that could be, that can dial um, children or the youth with like some principle? Yeah, for me, I definitely, of course, <laughs> my religious background, I'll talk about. Oh, don't say Bible. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, definitely. But there's, um... no, hear me out, hear me out. I think even if you are a non Christian, the story could actually work pretty Not well. Good. But. It talks about, um, in Genesis, I believe, chapter 32, um, Jacob, who wrestles with God. And to think about how fucking metal that is to wrestle literally with God. And it's interesting because a story goes is that, you know, Jacob, he was left alone and a man just showed up out of nowhere and wrestled him up until daybreak. And they kept going on and on and on wrestling. And when, like, the man saw he couldn't overpower Jacob, he touched a socket on his hip and literally just dislocated his hip and broke his hip until he got him to kneel and he said let go for his daybreak but jacob funnily enough replied i will not let go unless you bless me to this man and the man asked what is your name and he responds with jacob and it's interesting hearing that story because it's always like from me you know in life I feel like, you know, all these challenges and turbulations I face is like me just wrestling with God and wrestling with God could be many, me main things. So like whether it be me researching deeper into theology and like questioning, you know, my faith and learning more about it and being more secured in it or me like meeting other people of different faiths and like questioning my own ideals and trying to go forward. I see it as me constantly wrestling with God. And that's an interesting like, you know, story I would always say like I'd point to is one that's close to me. Definitely. Um, what about you? Or cheer as well? You guys are necessarily know if there's one specific story that I would always point to. Um, especially since like I'm not I'm not Christian. There's not like an easy 
a place for me to to point for moral values but i would say that um the oldest and best reconstructable uh indo-european story it's so basic that they literally call it the basic formula is he slew the dragon so we have like saint george like slaying the dragon we have thor like defeating jormungandr um we have indra like defeating the dragon and releasing the rivers and you can just find like mention after mention after mention after this and and this story has been you know central to the way that you know um indo-european speakers have thought about the world that uh man has the ability to overcome his fears uh, he can go to someone wise and ask for advice he can go to the weapons maker and get something that will give him the power to do what he desires he can drink the elixir that gives him strength and he can go and he can face this terrible unfathomable situation and come out victorious you know sometimes he does have to sacrifice an arm or a leg but in the end, like, he's secured prosperity, not only for himself and his family, but for his entire people. And that for this heroic deed, he'll be remembered forever. And I think oh. that this central idea of knowing that you, as an individual person, are powerful. And that there are people who can help you to change situations that are intolerable. That you can have, you know, mastery over nature at some consequence, uh, is is one of the things that caused Europeans to go and to travel the world and to do all of the really interesting things that they did because these stories, like, pressed them onward. Yeah, I think that's very um, poetic. Uh, it, I think a lot of these stories speak of humanistic vehicles and the limitations that can be shown um, beyond what people believe to be fathomable. And um, even me, um, one of the, even as someone who is a self-described agnostic, uh, someone who is flirtatiously, uh, uh, constantly um, very nihilistic in a lot of uh, beliefs, I sometimes find myself going back to limitations. Um, 21 verse, uh, people have heard my groanings there is no one to comfort me all of my enemies have heard my distress they rejoice at what they have at what you have done may you bring the day you have announced so they may become like me but in those words or at least in these stories it usually is a description of something that is beyond the tangible it's about the faith that uh, exists beyond the immediate and i find these stories to be um stories that really strive to um, behoove whoever is in their circumstance of dour, of bleakness to persevere on. And I think that's something um, definitely, um, I think, encouraging at the very least. So, yeah, um, I think those are even some stories that people can look towards and go here, even external of... Um, like religious values, you can see um, something 
very palpable for like any generation if you just read those stories of the people or like the song of songs in the Ketuvin. Those are like things I um, constantly find myself going back to. Yeah, if we're sharing like favorite um, Bible sections, I've always loved Psalm 27. It's always been my favorite. And then um, Romans 12, just the whole chapter. So based. So true. <laughs> it is based. So based. Um, so all really the time, Gabby had a moment. He's like, I'm so proud of this community. <laughs> Yeah, um, really quick. We have about five minutes left on the podcast. Cheers. Any last minute things you want to close out on? Any other things you want to touch on? I have some fun facts I want to share. Uh, but I would say okay. um, there's nothing wrong with being interested in Indo Europeans. Like, there are a lot of people who associate. Um, you know, thinking about or talking about Indo-Europeans or especially Indo-Aryans with like an unfortunate period of history. Um, and and I would say that, you know, the word Aryan gets a bad rap because of the way that it was used um, around the First and Second World War. Uh, the way it's actually used by like Indo-Iranians and Indo-Aryans, it means noble. And it just is a reference to the people group that they belong to. Uh, the The German idea, if you look at the way they're actually talking about the people they're describing, when they describe who is and who isn't Aryan, uh, they're actually describing the Hajnal line, which um, is a way to describe the different marriage patterns in Europe. Um, and so anyone who's quote-unquote inside this line has later marriage and lower birth rates. And anyone outside of the line has younger marriage and higher birth rates. And what the Germans were considering to be Aryan almost completely lines up with the older age of marriage and fewer children. And what they describe as the Nordic race, uh, they're really just describing where the Germanic peoples settled. So. Germany, Norway, Sweden, and England. And so Indo-Aryans have nothing to do with Germany whatsoever. It's just a way to describe the people who settled in northern India. And I think one of the reasons it's important to remove this sort of bad taste that everyone has for Indo-Europeans is that they existed and their culture has a strong influence on our culture and the stories that we like and how we talk about these stories. And I think that understanding that European culture goes back further than people like to think uh, is, is important for like self-identity, not in any negative sense, but some people will say, like, oh, my culture is older than yours, and that means my culture is better. But in this case, like, everyone's culture goes pretty far back. The question is just, like, how far back do the monuments go, and how far back do the written records go? But everyone's culture is quite old. Mongolians, people from South America, people from Egypt, like, everyone's culture goes back a long ways. It's just hard to tell 
what some cultures were because of the lack of remaining evidence. So I think learning more about the Indo-Europeans kind of helps you understand why Europeans acted the way they did in certain periods of history. And it also can explain some fun little things about like your own native language that you may never have thought of. Like for example, there's this common problem in English where we use the word cow to describe all cattle, but it also specifically refers to female cattle. I was always like, wow, this is a really dumb feature of English. Why do we do this? It turns out that this confusion goes back over 6,000 years, all the way back to the Proto-Indo-Europeans, who decided to use the word cow collectively just because there's only one bull but a lot of heifers. And, and here we are today, you know? Yeah, it's really interesting, definitely. And Cheer, we'd love to have you back on our podcast any other time if there's other topics you have interest in. And it was a pleasure having you on our show, and I hope, you know, you enjoyed your time with us. Oh, absolutely. It would be great to come back again in the future sometime. Most definitely. Hey, Z, do you have any closing comments or remarks? Yeah, I think it's uh, great to have uh, Chair on to discuss uh, Aryan culture and um, how it's kind of, um, to some degree, been bastardized um to just speak of some um importance or greater significance of just a pigmentation um rather than a better understanding of history and um our like understanding of origins of how language and functionality of these things work and how we can know more about ourselves going forward because to operate within a, a historical nature of society um not only um, serves to find ourselves in the similar pitfalls of our past generations, but it uh, does nothing for us in terms of moving forward. And I think um, getting away from the former and rather focus on the latter definitely helps our society as a whole. No, everyone, um, if you do, um, Cheer is on Twitter. Huge yes, recommendation, yes. shout out. Give her a follow. She's Absolutely. an amazing person. Yeah, no, I love her content. Yes, I appreciate you wholeheartedly coming on. Uh, This has been one of my favorite episodes to record today. And hopefully you come back again. But that's everything for this episode of Rec Room Radio. I'm Hazy Dialects, and you've seen this all in HD. Yep, and I'm Solar Rec Room. And one more time, Cheer, you can find her on Twitter. And Cheer, are you on any other social media platforms? Um, I do have a Substack, Manifesto Friend. where I do occasionally post essays. Oh yeah, definitely check that out as well. Um, Cheer, like I said, can't praise her enough. She's an amazing human. I love her to death. Um, great page and definitely kept me through some shady days. But yeah, um, this is Solar Requiem and you've seen us all at Requiem Radio. Have a good one.